All right. Hey, Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. You know, as I was looking back at, at Vomo and Virtuous and what you guys have been able to do there, it's just an incredible story. You mind, you know, from an idea and concept all the way to a strategic exit and the funding along the way, right? Everybody's got stories mm. about what the life of a startup is, and it's always this romantic ideal. So... You want to just kind of walk us through a little bit about, you know, what you were able to do with Voma, where it came from and where it ended up. And then let's dig into the journey along the way. Yeah. Yes. You, um, yeah. You don't want the rosy, um, <laughs> the rosy picture. You want, you want all of it, huh? Um, uh, oh, definitely start with the rosy, right? <laughs> and, then we'll, and, then we'll dig in. and then we'll do that. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. The high level is I uh, was living in London uh, started Vomo, and I, I'll get into the backstory here in a little bit. But started Vomo uh, in idea 2015, uh, initial MVP proof of concept in like summer of 2016. Uh, moved to America Q4 2016, and and really started uh, finishing the product and starting to scale the company, and then did it for about six years, and um, went from you know angel investors seed funding, kind of more advanced seed funding from some syndicates and whatnot through a series A, and then uh, recently got acquired a uh, strategic acquisition back in February of 2022 um, and, and merged everything into a bigger company called Virtuous. It's headquartered out of Phoenix. That's fantastic. Right. And it's never that clean. Right? I know. Yeah. So, <laughs> so how long did it take you to go from you know, vision to MVP? Was that a year, year and a half, or was it like six months? What, what do you think? Yeah. Um, so for me, I, you know, I originally, after business school, uh, went to seminary and, and got a theological degree Was a pastor. And I, I tell people all the time, I was, um, I was doing all the things that Vomo, you know, replaced with technology, but I was doing them manually. Right. So I, I was mobile, you know, Vomo stands for volunteer mobilization. It's a web-based platform and app that connects willing volunteers to organizations and needs uh, around the country, actually multiple countries to go meet those needs and do good. And we were doing that on like hyper local levels when I was running ministries and then nonprofits. And so I, I had been around the space and um, actually had a, a book tour that I did in 2015. Um, and the big idea was let's, eight cities in the US, I'll fly back from London, let's get these cities, all the nonprofits and charities represented there that have needs, let's get all these excited folks in the audience to go meet these needs. And, you know, we were doing it through clipboards and signup sheets and it just, cool concept, but nobody did it. And and so that was kind of the beginning vision. I remember I was riding the tube um, from Heathrow Airport in London to our house in Northeast London and had the the aha moment, like the vision for what became Vomo. And it was it was off the the back of, of doing this book tour that was really cool, uh, sold a lot of books, but nobody really did the whole big idea of getting mobilized to go meet needs in the community like we thought. And I was studying digital platforms and um, just reading about technology and, you know, all the crazy stats about smartphone usage and platform society. And the aha was like, wow, could we, could we leverage the power of technology like right now in this cultural moment to get people to go do what we've been trying to do, um, you know, through manual processes now do this through technology and, and really scale a company to go do good. And so that was the, you know, so that was like 2015 was the tour to answer your question. And then floating around with the idea, um, 
it was probably a year between having the vision on the tube in London to our first event in Washington, D.C. in July of 2016. So it was a year of like fleshing out the concept, you know, telling all my friends about it, seeing who would help me, you know, <laughs> liquidating a nonprofit that we had to try to get funding to just pay for some computers and people to, people to code at the beginning. Um, yeah. And then the, like the public launch was in July of 2016. So it was about a year, but I'd been flirting around with the idea and, and kind of living out the experiences before, before that point. Yeah. Isn't it crazy, right? Cause so many folks hear about, Oh, you know, we did the startup and we, we liquidated these assets and liquidated these assets is code for took a huge <laughs> leap. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Highly stressful. <laughs> leap. Yeah. You, okay. You know? All right. Let me unpack that. You're, you're exactly right. Um, so yeah, liquidated assets to, in my world meant um, I had a nonprofit. I was living in London. We were starting churches. I was on this. I realized when I was 30, when we moved to London, that I was an entrepreneur. And I had I had intrapreneured a lot of stuff in larger organizations. But um, I was on the crazy cycle of like having an idea, starting something, going to raise capital from whoever I could, mostly in America, flying back to do it, coming back, hiring a British team, running the thing, and you're just jumping around, spinning all these plates. And when the vision for Vomo came, there were some outside circumstances and people speaking in my life that were like, bro, you you need to not have six jobs. Like you need to do one thing well. And, and Vomo was it. And But I the vision was so strong, to your point about liquidating assets, I, um, I had this nonprofit and we had some guys in Budapest who had reached out totally, I would say supernatural, but like a random deal. And they heard about what we were doing. I, I went on top of a, of an apartment, like a flat, like an apartment building and had a dude shoot a video. And I'm like casting this, you know, highly dramatic video of the vision of Vomo. And then we send it around to all our friends to try to raise some, we were a nonprofit at the time, raise some money. And, um, that video got forwarded to somebody in Miami who forwarded it to somebody in Budapest. And these guys in Budapest email me and they're like, Hey, we've got to talk. And, um, we did a zoom and they start crying and they're like, we've been working on this exact same idea, same, even same like slogan. It was like change your community, change the world at the time. And they're like, but we're stuck and we're engineers. We don't know how to raise money. We don't know how to market it. We don't know how to sell it. We don't know how to do the vision stuff, but we can build, you know? And so by liquidating assets, I bought two plane tickets to Budapest and literally the next week flew there. These guys picked me up at the airport. Like looking back, they could have murdered me, you know, like I have no clue who these guys are. And, um, and then by the end of the day, they gave us all their code and we're like, can we work for you? And so we put them on payroll and I didn't have a company to have put them on payroll. So we just started scraping all the money we could together. Luckily they were in Budapest and it didn't cost a lot to have guys over there, but yeah, like we just, we went all or broke, broke or nothing or whatever the, whatever the phrase is. All or nothing. All yeah. Or nothing. Yeah. yeah. Let's go. Right. That That's awesome. Right. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I look back, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be a part of a couple of different startups and, you know, I wasn't part of one where I can tell you, like, it was like this incredible, fantastic exit. They were, there were ones where it was, it was good, right? And it, it was all good at the end, but it wasn't like, 
retirement hit the, you know, the, the pull the slot machine and everything, all the bells go off and yeah. it's like, okay, this is it. You, you wrote it. But the lessons learned along the way about just the stress levels that go up with that. And then the willingness to take a risk mm. and see it through, mm. right. Is, is invaluable. And a lot of times there's, there's an element to it where I, I think there are people that are attracted to it in that lifestyle because they like that adrenaline rush. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then there's folks that are attracted to it and do it because they, they truly are entrepreneurial in nature. They see problems, they find ways to solve those problems and they find ways to, um, to generate revenue and wealth, wealth creation revenue off of that. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's, that's one of the critical pieces because there's a lot of times there's a lot of needs that are out there in the world that anybody can solve, but not necessarily people are willing to pay for. Sure. Right. And, and you were able to, as I, as I look back over the history of Vomo and what you were able to do with it, I'm guessing there were quite a few pivots mm. along the way. <laughs> totally. Right. Yeah. And um, I, I was talking with somebody last week and he said, you know, his partner, his business partner is sick of the word pivot. He calls it pirouettes, hmm. right? Because he was just like, I was like, okay, call it what you will, but you're changing direction, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, just kind of, you know, as you, you think back on it, right? I remember you and I were working together on this at, at one point, and yeah. there, was a, there was a time where it was like, okay, you know, to get to, you know, a hundred million valuation or a billion dollar valuation, whatever, you know, you want to pick your number, it was going to take X, X more millions of dollars, right. To go do funding. Yeah. And then there's what I call, there's a thing that I call founders fatigue, mm -hmm. right. Yep. Which or funding for founders, founders funding fatigue. Totally. Yep. Right. How much time were you having to spend working on the business versus, you know, fundraising for the business? Yeah, good question. Um, that was a big conversation with a few of my board members because, you know, these guys have been really successful, but they weren't necessarily successful in my space. And so some stuff was incredibly helpful and others was more just general business platitudes that didn't help us as much because we were, I'm like, I need SaaS help now on these things, you know? Um, but one of them was like, you know, the big concept of you need to be working on the business, not in the business. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds really easy to say from the sidelines, but when you're the dude who has everything on the line and you, 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 your reputation, you liquidate it all, you jumped in, you're, you know, and you, you get stuck where it's like, you're trying to, you've got to raise capital and then, you know, you deploy that to hire the people around you. But then if you can't raise enough, then you can't get the, the level of talent you need. And so you, you keep getting, Inertia sucks you back into the company over and over and over again until you hit a certain stage. And, and I don't know, maybe you could probably tell me better if that ever, <laughs> if that ever, you know, you can truly just work on the business as a, as a founder. I don't know. Um, but um, yeah, it, we went through, to answer your question about funding, we went through multiple rounds, you know, the very early days, I, I was like, okay, I need to raise 600,000 and let's go pull together three guys, get them each to put 200 in. Um, that was pretty easy, right? And then we had, or at least it was easy for me. I was using relationships that I had. And 
um, and my previous background of, of running nonprofits and churches and raising money, I so I knew that world is a different ask, but um, uh, was comfortable doing that. Um, so that was great at the MVP stage when it's just you and you know my brother and a, one or two other guys, and you can draw a little salary off it and start building. But then once we started needing to scale and hire all, especially with an exchange platform and SaaS platform like we had, you've you know you got to spend all the money to market to get the leads to, and then sales folks, and then you've got to support it with all of the CS customer success side of it, and then you've got all the engineers that are building everything, and so the team just grows and grows and grows. And uh, yeah, I was pro- I was. I would say I was spending at least 50% of my time fundraising the entire journey of FOMO. Yeah, I, I think I think that's fair, right? I'm yet to have engaged with a founder that had a successful startup that didn't spend that much time just doing that, right? Because even even after you get whatever round of funding you want to have done, right, there's a half-life on that. Totally. And... And you've got to start fundraising for the next round almost as soon as you finish your first your, exactly. the round you're in. Yep, yep. Yeah, because you, you recognize, okay, this has got a certain amount of longevity to it, and I've got to double this raise for the next round. Yep. And so that means I've got to start now, uh-huh. starting to sell that story. You know. Yeah, and the, as, as you go. Well, and the best the best time to raise money is when you don't need money, and the best time to raise money is when you just raise money, you know, <laughs> like it's when people sense that you're desperate or, you know, the clock's ticking on payroll, like that scares most investors. And so you, yes, to do it well, you've got to be really ahead of it. And you're, you've got your, your meta story that is playing out throughout the whole thing. And, you know, you're, you're playing, it's a game, right? You're over, you're, you're oversubscribing this round because, you know, people want to jump in at the end and, I, I say a lot of investors are kind of like lemmings, like they just they they want to follow somebody else, and that's what breeds trust, and then they'll jump in. But yeah, it's a there's a whole capital strategy that I think I learned by fire going through it um, that will help me in my next venture for sure. Because you've you, you've done it once, now you know what the feelings like and what you should have done differently, uh, which hopefully will be hopefully will give me a little little edge. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of which, it tees up what the next question was, which was essentially, you know, if you could go back in time and impart the wisdom that you have now to your former self, right at the beginning of this, what are two or three things that you would do differently in terms of like people you would hire or efforts that you would focus on? I mean, I say people, I don't mean names. I mean, like roles. Would you hire in the same sequence? Would you make the same investments or would you, would you change the way you spend your time? Yeah. I, one of them that comes to mind is I was told by some guys early on that I need to be the head salesperson. And, and I get the sentiment of that because, you know, as the founder, founder led sales at the beginning, that's it, right? Like that's all you got. And you've got the vision. You can see how the pieces all go together. You're the most passionate about it. Like you're the guy that, especially if you have the personality for it, you're the one that's going to get that done. And so I did a lot of that. Um, but what's interesting is during our acquisition, when we're in due diligence, every major deal that was over six figures was me. And that's after six years, you know? And so we had a lot of salespeople that could come in and sell small deals, sell medium sized one, but the bigger deals, it was still me. And so 
I realize that in the future, in my next venture, like I'll need to be a part of that. But if I, I think hiring a, a revenue officer, sales leader, VP of sales, whatever you want to call it, uh, a lot earlier on would have been a massively strategic hire. Uh, that I didn't ever have. And we never, we never really cracked the code. We were able to get good, solid, like account executives, but the leadership of that side of it was something that was, um, you know, that, that's a hard, that's a hard seat to fill, you know? Yeah. It, just to, to ride, go down that trail a little bit more before we come back to the others. I was having breakfast with a, a colleague earlier this morning and, and they're in the second year their startup, yeah, they're, they've they've got a full year in, and they're they're starting their second year, and they're looking at bringing on a, a pretty heavy hitter. And one of the questions they've got is, it would double the salary of you know the predecessor that had been in that role. Mm. And the question they were like is, can we afford it? And the flip question of that is, can you afford not to? Right? Sure. And it was, it, and as we were exploring that conversation, we were going through it. Don't think about it. I mean, obviously, you've got to think about it from a cost perspective, from a cash flow perspective. Right. But if you've got the cash there, think about it from an ROI perspective. Totally. Totally. Right. Yeah. And and so many times I see people use a poverty mindset or scarcity mindset versus an abundance and growth mindset. Yes. And and in a in a startup world. You've got to have, in order for that vision to come to fruition, you've got to have an abundance and growth mindset mm-hmm. that's that's grounded in the reality of cash, but really living, at least my perspective, you've got to live in that abundance and that belief perspective. Absolutely. No, I couldn't yeah. agree more. And uh, I like I like that you put it, called an abundance mindset, because that makes me feel a lot more normal. Um <laughs> my wife or other people, they might, they're like, I don't know what world you live in, you know, but the reality is here and you're just out there and I know it makes you good at your job, but that's, you know, it, you feel kind of, I remember telling people when I'd get real introspective about it, that you have to feel a little bipolar about money because I had to make decisions to spend money that I don't currently have that we will have, but if I make the decision, then the ROI, just like you said, is going to take us to the next level of growth. But if you sit around and look at it with a uh, scarcity mindset, you, you wouldn't hire anybody. You just sit on a pile of cash and pay people for as long as you possibly can, but that'll get you nowhere, you know, and then you're spending more money to, to go be in the same place a year later. And, and at some point people are going to stop funding that. So yeah, you've got to have that abundance mindset for sure. And, um, and, and I think you need, you got to have that visionary component. And I know for me, another thing I learned is, you know, with the EOS entrepreneur operating system and all that stuff, like I'm totally the visionary and I've got to have operator and operators to help keep things on track um, so that we can actually achieve those growth milestones. Cause it's, I'd get, I, I by nature will get too uh, excited about the next idea or next shiny, shiny big deal we can get or whatever. Um, but that kind of slow, stable, especially with SaaS, like predictable revenue growth is is what's going to make this a healthy, scalable company, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is, right? And that's that's the kicker, right? It, at least the way I think about it is you, you know, it's, it's the whole notion of uh, 2T, 3D, right? Which is triple, triple, double, 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 mm. right? To get to, you know, your 
your billion dollar valuation or your hundred million dollar revenue. And, and that, that idea requires this exponential growth capability. Mm. And so, and the, the thinking is right. You, you're going to get to a, a harvest ability later, right. But not during, not during those first five years, you're just not totally. And you're, you're going to be, you're going to increase in your profitability, but you're not going to worry about being a rule of 40 firm until you're, until you're through that, that fifth year. Yeah. And then if you want to be a rule of 40 firm, that's great. Then figure out if it's growth or profitability or whatnot. Yeah. 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 See, and that's something else is I don't think I know that now I didn't know that. I mean, I think you intellectually understand it when you get in the business and see how it goes, but I, I wasn't articulating that story early enough as the founder de facto chairman of the board, you know, cause you know, by as a sales salesy person by nature, you're an visionary. You're, you're like, Oh, we just need X number of accounts and we're going to you know blow our revenue target out of the water. And then everybody's excited and happy, but understanding true SAS is yes, exactly what you said. And you're going to run uh, non-profitable for a long time. And then you're going to hit that breakthrough and just start seeing the, lifetime value on it just continue to go. But um, yeah, I think a lot of founders get their skis out ahead of them telling the big home run story, but not knowing the the strategy that's got to go into that to truly hit it with patience. Yeah. And, and I think the, the other piece of it, right, is a lot of times from a hiring perspective, we always look at it and we think, okay, the person that we're hiring today is going to be that person that can scale with us the whole way through. Yeah. The, re- the reality of it is that's not the case. Right. right? I, I mean, it's rare. I shouldn't say it's not the case. It's rarely the case. Yeah. They, there are people that can, but by and large, you, you either hire somebody that's already at that, that larger level and asking them to, you know, constrain themselves back down with fewer resources and fewer capabilities and wearing more hats. Mm. Right. Um, and, and being a lot more diversified in the way that they operate, or you're going to hire somebody that can operate with all of these hats today, but was really going to struggle when you ask them to wear less hats and get increasingly focused on something. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. We went, we probably in the six years that we ran, Voma before acquisition, I bet, I bet we went through 40 different people that came, right. that were hires that at some point were no longer working for us. And most of them were, you know, friendly, like let's help people move on to the next thing. But some of them, we just had to change directions. I mean, I know, I remember we were, we were running an outbound call center uh, for about a year and a half and hired a leader to come in and, and lead that force who'd done it successfully before. And we're, we're dialing for dollars and have folks on the phone. And, and then yeah, I, I ran the math and realized the cost to acquire was just so astronomically higher from human, human people on the phone versus digital lead generation. And we had to make a really hard decision to just can that whole department. And, you know, we had to go in and do a, a 20 person layoff at, at, one time, which was just terrible, but we, I could see that the we were never going to achieve what we needed to if we kept on with that. It was just the wrong model for what we were trying to do, and after enough time, it proved out. But yeah, you're right; it's very rare that that even your leaders are going to be with you through each 
growth stage level, you know, and we're seeing that even now with virtuous, you know, we're a $150 million company and continue to grow and double each year. And um, there's a lot of, you know, middle management and, and leadership executives who if it's the first time for a lot of people. And so you, but we're constantly having to go upgrade a little bit per se to go hire exactly what you said, the people that have been there and done it before, get them to come down and, and that they have a lot of experience and value that, that, you know, we can try our best, but it'd be really nice to have somebody that's been there before and make the, or make these uh, head, make this growth, you know, growth curve a little easier. Yeah. It's, 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 it's always good to have a guide, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody who's been there, they know the path, they know the course and it's like, okay, let's go. And, and then I, you should on your board, right? You should have those people that have been there and they understand the role and they can ask the, the good informative questions. And sometimes um, a lot of, at least what I've seen is a lot of times when people are building out their board early on and they're building their cap table, yeah. sometimes they don't understand. They don't understand the places that they need or better yet. They know what they need today, but they really don't have a good understanding of what they're going to need 18 months or two or three years down the road right. and how to, how to allow and allocate room for that. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah. Today, thinking about it, you know, 18 months to two years in the future. Yes. Oh yeah. And, and back earlier in our conversation, when you were asking kind of what would I do differently, that that's probably, I mean, we've gone through a few of them here, but number two or three would be, um, allocating for my employee option pool from day one. Um, I didn't do that because we didn't, we were a nonprofit when we started and we just chopped up shares and gave ownership based on the first few investors and the guys that were there at the beginning. But then that, because we finally got there when we did our series a and we had to carve out an option pool. But, um, but before that it felt like I'm having to go fight with the board and over my largest investors to try to clear up equity for future employees that made it really hard for me to do that, which then made it even more difficult to go recruit those people to come to the company. And if I would have had, an, you know, it's just such an easy solution to have a, a carved out option pool from the beginning, but I didn't know that because this is my first startup. And um, I mean, I'd be, I'm doing that day one next time, you know, and then it's already spent, you know, it's, it's there and we're going to have people vest and it's all great. But uh, fighting with, you know, arguably, arguably fighting with other people to take away shares from them to pay to other employees, unless they really understand the big picture and have seen it before. That's, that's a difficult, difficult conversation. It is, especially if they think about it from like a percentage um, of ownership perspective. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and when they look at their ROIs, they're thinking about it in terms of what's my percentage of the size of the EV for the firm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, all right. So what else, what um, better yet, Let's let's switch a little bit. What are a couple of things that you absolutely crushed and you would do again? I think the being able to articulate the vision from the beginning yeah. was something that was really helpful. And I I was able to really get that messaging down and articulate the vision. And I and I, I knew that if I could get in a room with a potential investor or a potential uh, client, I could just totally sell them on that and, and walk out with the win. And so that was really, uh, that was huge for us. And so we, we rode that horse a lot. <laughs> um, 
So that was something that went really well. Um, and then I think uh, something that went really well is after the first couple years and the early clients, uh, we realized we had a scalability pro problem with our tech stack. And so um, we needed to, sorry, muting that. We needed to, um, you know, essentially up, upgrade everything. And so going out, and spending the money on the guys that have been there and done it before, and they bring in their own team and they're here locally, they're coming into our office. They rebuilt the whole thing in like year two, and that allowed us to truly scale because um, we had a lot of problems before that, um, just because you, you build what you can afford, you know, and you build what what's in front of you and with who you got. And so that was fine to get us the early sales and the early, you know, the early clients, but when we realized we couldn't scale, like getting the right folks in the room was huge. Um, and then I think uh, another thing we really were able to crush was on the brand side of it was um, just landing these big national clients and, and taking your pirouettes or your pivots when, when like during COVID, when things came and just totally flipped everything upside down, we were able to get really scrappy fast and make some quick decisions and then ride some, some large enterprise deals because of that movement. Um, and, and so the narrative out in the market was that we were a lot bigger than we were, which was a good thing. Um, so yeah, I think that was a, those were all kind of things that, that we were able to crush from the beginning, um, that got us to the point of, of, of being able to be acquired. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah. So it, it's, it's interesting because I think one of the things, a lot of times people look at specifically in the SaaS world is they see the numbers in the small business world, right? Or the small organization, they just see the number of organizations, which are hundreds of thousands or millions. And they're like, ooh, if I can serve that, it's great. And what I found is a lot of times, it's better to go and perfect your product and your offering serving a larger, large business or an enterprise level, not necessarily with all the, the bells and whistles of an enterprise offering, but they can afford to fund you. Yeah. Yep. Right. And your business yep. a lot better. Yep. And it typically takes the same amount of effort to win, win that as it does the smaller one. Yeah. And so you can land those. Then you can it's it's easy to migrate downstream mm -hmm. stream. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and automate that service, that onboarding and uh, the customer acquisition process for those smaller businesses to where your CAC is just so much lower if you automate that. Yep. And then your, your cost to serve is so much lower as well, right? And then you're, you're that at that point, then that segment becomes much more profitable mm -hmm. versus if you start with the small businesses and you try and build around it, all of a sudden you're over-serving them and you realize you're hemorrhaging and you're losing money and you're like, wait a minute, why isn't this working? And you don't have an ability to, at least what I've seen a lot of SaaS companies, they don't have the ability to truly automate that process, mm -hmm. right? Um, instead, whereas if they, they work on the larger accounts and they automate it and then cascade it down, it just seems to work better. Totally. What do you yeah, yeah. Well, and you you were there with us consulting with us, seeing, helping us see some of this stuff. That, that was, um, that's the deal. Like the, the, the big, you know, I'd say in our world, like $75,000 and greater ARR clients, they took yeah. the exact same amount of effort to sell as the $4,800 ARR clients. And 
same energy, same resources from our team. They're just paying a much bigger number. And and when we would land those early on, you know, yes, they're they were larger than we could truly serve, you know, completely excellently, but they gave us the grace to go build all the features that they needed, which you know, so they're funding our development because we landed some of them and we had enough done that we could like check most of the boxes and then they knew we're a startup. So then they're happy to pay you and then like, oh, well, we'll, we'll build that feature and have it out in two, you know, eight weeks or whatever for you. So they're funding our development, which that's, that's huge. So the more you could do that, that I mean, it's like bootstrapping essentially. That was massive. But then yes, to your point, we, yeah, we had to go up market because you, you can't, we couldn't figure out how to get the unit economics at like at less than five grand ARR a year to, to fund where this thing needs to go, you know? And so um, I looked at a deck this morning of a a company that is trying to build something and they were like, what do you think? And I was like, man, hundred dollars per account per month. So $1,200 a year. Like I just, I know this can be done, but as a startup with limited capital and resources, like I just don't know how you could sell at that kind of volume to truly make this thing scalable I get how like a Google can or somebody with unlimited pocketbooks can go do a freemium offering, but I don't know, you got to get a lot of traction really, really fast to be able to, at, at low price points to be able to get, get scalability, you know? Yeah. Well, your, your cost to serve and your customer acquisition costs have got to be so small yeah. in that situation. Yeah. Right. Um, that it's, it's just, it's tough, right? And and specifically when you're you're talking about somebody that's it's you know twelve hundred dollars. I'm assuming it's a B two B application, right? And in that that situation, yeah, it is. You know, yeah. It, that's that's throwaway money. So there's no there's no loyalty that's there, right? It's an impulse buy, totally. And and any impulse buy, you've got to figure your you know your churn rate's going to be pretty mm-hmm. high. Mm-hmm. And, and as soon as you get to that point, then it becomes really, it, it becomes tough. Yeah. Well, and, and also so. in our, our experience, I needed, it was better for people to pay larger amounts of money because I know that the onboarding time for our platform, for the client to be able to start seeing value from it, it's going to take a quarter yeah. for, before they really are up and running. And so at a low price point, if, if you're not locking people in on an annual contract, then it's like, they're going to bail before they even see the value of what we're giving them with our product offering, you know? And so the higher, the higher contract value just made so much more sense Then, yeah, I think you've got a lot of wisdom and that, yeah, it's really easy to go down market. It's it, hard to go up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So random question, you and I haven't talked about this before, but what's, what's next for Rob? Like if you had, you know, a genie pop out of a lantern and say, you know, you can do whatever you want. What do you want to do? No, that's that's the question I'm currently asking right now. <laughs> it's um, I think coming. I, I think starting something else would be incredibly fun, and I think I almost feel like I owe it to myself and my family a little bit because I, I've, you know, you're you're learning, you're building the plane and flying at the same time for the first time. It happens to go right. You get it done, but you just did a lot of stuff backwards and, and just, you didn't know. And so now I do. And so that would be incredibly fun, but I would want to get the right idea and I want to start with the right people. Um, uh, doing it by yourself or with just one other person is pr- pretty difficult. Um, be fun to 
fun to be open and see who these folks could be and go play a role in that. Um, another thing that I think is really fun, and I, I might be naive in this, is um, I've got multiple like VC friends who are uh, seeing a lot of deals and doing these things. And it'd be I, I've been able to do some mentoring now just off the experiences we've done. But it'd be really cool to be in a spot where you can help mentor other companies that are similar stage or, or just starting out and walk along with them and, and have the capital resources from, from some funds to be able to dump into some of these and journey along with them would be a blast. And so uh, I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. I know people do that as a job, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I know that those are two things that are really interesting to me. And I was telling somebody the other day, it's like, I don't think the kind of role I'm looking for next is something you go apply for on LinkedIn um, in a normal job description. Cause it's just, uh, you try to explain like, the world I've been in and what I've done. And probably like you, it's like, oh, well, I ran this ministry and then ran that nonprofit, then moved overseas and did this and then started a tech company. And it just, it's like a wild, you know, configuration of all these things. And so I think it's going to be pretty unique on whatever, whatever God's got for me next on uh, how you fit those pieces together. But uh, I know for me also, I, I need to believe in what I'm doing and, and have it be purpose driven in a sense. And so I, I you know, Maybe that's too long of a list, but it's worked so far. So I'm hoping we can, <laughs> hoping I'll find find that next one. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that's that's important, right? Because you you got to have that calling. If you don't have the calling, then it's really hard yes. to stay in the grind. Yes. Right. Yeah. It gr grind without a purpose oh. just beats you down. Yeah. Oh, I remember so many times where you're you're sweating payroll or you're working on the next round of funding and you know, you think you're going to get it done, but then somebody calls you and they, they, you know, they sign the paper, the LOI, but they're backing out or whatever. And you're, you're playing the whole game. And I remember so many times just this amount of stress that if I, if I didn't fully believe that I was called to do this, you, you'd be, a, you'd go crazy, you know, like you've got to have the belief um, and the conviction in what you're doing or else it's just really hard to stick around because it's, it's a grind. You're right. Yeah. That's crazy. So it is, and it's, you know, I think as I, as I look at it, right. And I look at you and what you've been able to do, I'm, I'm excited to see what's next, mm. right. Because you've, you've had such an incredible adventure so far. And I'm thinking about, you know, everything from the next startup, right. The next disruption, mm. I can see you doing something along those lines, or to, to your point, coming into something that's a little bit more mature and helping take it to the next level. Yeah, yeah. So either way, I'm really excited to see what's going on with you. And Rob, I just want to say thanks so much for your time today. Absolutely, Mike. It's been it's been fun. And I love well, I love all our conversations. So this is uh, fun and hopefully hopefully it'll be helpful to some other folks that, that listen. Yeah, absolutely. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Um, probably just email me. It's rwpbody at gmail.com. That's probably the easiest way. I got a lot of different company ones, but that's the one that lives with me forever. So <laughs> they can do that. Or, um, uh, yeah, let's just do email or they can come to us and you can help. Check your profile. You it. We'll have yeah, your LinkedIn, LinkedIn profile. That's on, good, too. That's probably the easiest it. place. LinkedIn, just Rob yeah. Peabody on LinkedIn. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. Yeah, man.